I hope you uh, picked up a a copy of the uh, sermon notes as you uh, came in. Uh, Our current study is on the Psalms of the Degrees, uh, the study entitled Celebrating uh, Triumph Over Trouble Through Trust in God. Uh, We believe the 15 Psalms, which make up the Psalms of the Degrees, were compiled by King Hezekiah of the Old Testament, and that he compiled these 15 psalms to be sung to God as songs of praise for the miracle of the degrees and what that miracle signified. Uh, God performed the miracle of the degrees at a time when uh, uh, Hezekiah was confronted with uh, two great crises of faith. Uh, One was the invasion of a terminal disease into his body, uh, which brought to Hezekiah a death sentence. Uh, The other was the invasion of the Assyrians into the nation of Judah, which brought the nation uh, a death sentence. Uh, God used the miracle of the degrees to guarantee that he would intervene in both of those crises and accomplish three things. First, that he would miraculously heal Hezekiah of his terminal disease. Second, that he would add 15 years to Hezekiah's life. And then third, he would deliver supernaturally uh, the nation of Judah uh, from the invasion of the mighty Assyrian Empire. Now, today we come to Psalm 130. It's the 11th of the 15 psalms in the group. Uh, We have noted how the 15 psalms seem to be arranged in uh, groups, uh, five trios, uh, with the first psalm in each trio speaking of trouble, uh, the second psalm, trust in God, and the third, uh, triumph or deliverance from God. Psalm 30 is the second psalm in the fourth trio, and it's all about trusting in God's forgiveness of sin. So let's begin by reading the psalm, which is printed for you right there in your sermon notes. Psalm 130, trusting in God's forgiveness of sin. Verse 1, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. We we noted in uh, previous lessons that of the 15 psalms Hezekiah compiled to make up the psalms of the degrees, four uh, are written by David, uh, one by his son Solomon, and the uh, remaining ten, which are anonymous, uh, we believe were written by Hezekiah himself. And uh, Psalm 130 is one of those. And I believe you can easily see how the mood of the psalm uh, fits very well 
with uh, the personal crisis that Hezekiah was experiencing with his, uh, the trial of his illness, as well as the national crisis that they were facing uh, due to the invasion of the Assyrians. He begins the psalm, notice, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. You might want to circle that phrase, uh, the depths. Uh, that phrase is a metaphor, and it is an abbreviation of the expression, the depths of the sea. Uh, it represents drowning in distress, being overwhelmed and sucked down into the bottomless waters of trouble. I'll give you a couple of other uh, great examples where this language is used in the Bible. Uh, first, in Psalm 69, uh, verses 1 and 3, David wrote this. He said, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. And then verse 15, he wrote, Do not let the flood waters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Uh, when Jonah was thrown into the sea and swallowed by the great fish. He cried out in Jonah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, In my distress I called to the Lord, and He answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. And then in verses 5 and 6, he wrote, The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. So like David, uh, like Nona, Hezekiah found himself thrashing and floundering in the waters of trouble like a drowning man. He realized neither he or the nation had the strength to save themselves. It appeared that both were doomed to drown in the depths of their troubles. But he also realized that he and the nation were not without hope, that there is a great lifesaver the great rescuer of men and nations, and therefore he cried out to deliverance from God. Uh, five times in this uh, psalm of eight verses, Hezekiah addresses God as Jehovah, which of course is the covenant name for God, indicating Hezekiah is putting all his trust, he's putting all his hope in the unfailing love and everlasting faithfulness of God. Uh, when you look at the psalm printed there in your uh, sermon notes, every place where you see the word Lord capitalized, uh, that is the word Jehovah in the Hebrew. We find it in verse 1, I have cried to you, O Jehovah. Verse 3, if you, Jehovah, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Verse 5, I wait for Jehovah, my soul does wait. And then twice in verse 7, O Israel, hope in Jehovah, for with Jehovah there is loving kindness. Three times, 
Hezekiah addresses God as Adonai, meaning the sovereign Lord and Master, indicating Hezekiah is trusting, even in his circumstances, as difficult as they were, that God was in control, that there's nothing too difficult for God. In verse 2, he says, Adonai, hear my voice. Verse 3, O Adonai, who can stand? Verse 6, my soul waits for Adonai. So, in the midst of his trouble, although he, he's, he's struggling, I mean, like a drowning man, he's still looking to the covenant-keeping God. He's still trusting God's unfailing love, his enduring faithfulness, that God ultimately is in control. Nothing is too difficult for God, and that God has the ability to deliver. Now, probably the best way to approach uh, Psalm 130 is I just initially give this summary of the psalm, is to see it comprised of four couplets. Uh, Each couplet, of course, uh, with two verses. Uh, The first couplet, verses 1 and 2, is simply, of course, his cry for God's deliverance. Look again. He says, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Every one of the verses, uh, every one of the verbs in those two verses stress urgency. And that the psalmist has been crying out for some time, implying a very long, drawn-out trial of faith. The word supplications comes from a word meaning to show favor or to give mercy to. So the psalmist is asking for God's deliverance, not on the basis of his performance before God or that he deserves it, but he's asking for deliverance as an undeserved, gracious gift from God. Uh, The spirit of the supplication is, is captured very well in the publican's prayer in Luke chapter 18, verse 13. Remember, the publican would not even uh, look up into the heavens, and he beat his uh, breast with his fist, and he cried out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And that's exactly the spirit that we see here in Psalm 130 that's being expressed by Hezekiah. And since supplications is plural, the psalmist's prayers are frequent and with great intensity. Uh, The second couplet, verses 3 and 4, expresses confidence uh, that God will answer his prayers because he knows God forgives sin. He says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. The question, if the Lord should mark iniquities, who could stand, indicates if God were to keep record of our sins. And if he were to hold that record against us, not one of us could ever hope to be delivered. Not one of us could ever hope to escape judgment. But the psalmist acknowledges he does not need to be concerned about that. Why? Because there is forgiveness with God. God does not remember the sins of those who turn to him in repentance. Rather, he forgives. The word forgiveness here means to pardon. It means to erase. It means to remove. A couple of good, great cross-references to uh, indicate uh, the depth in which God forgives. Uh, Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Uh, This is David's psalm. 
after he repented of his adultery with Bathsheba. And not only adultery with Bathsheba, but then murdering her husband, Uriah, to try to cover up his sin. And God pardoned him from that. And this is what he wrote. He says, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. And again, as I read this, remember, this is a man who's guilty of adultery and murder and then trying to even uh, live a life of deceit and dishonesty to cover all of that up before God broke him and he came to repentance. Verse 5, he says, Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Micah, chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, one of the greatest statements in all the Bible about God's forgiveness. It says, Who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. See, that's what Hezekiah was putting his confidence in. He talked about himself being in the depths, floundering as a drowning man. But he had confidence that God would deliver him because God had thrown his sins into the depths of the sea. And because of that, God had a disposition of love toward him. And he would respond to the cries of his child. And he would deliver his child. The end of Psalm, uh, verse 4 says the reason God forgives is that we might reverence and worship Him. You know, a great uh, New Testament example of this is the immoral woman in, uh, in Luke 7 uh, who repented of her sin and placed her faith in Jesus for forgiveness. If you're familiar with the story, uh, this was a prostitute, uh, a harlot. Uh, and she had, uh, for many, many years apparently, uh, that was her lifestyle, and she'd be living in that immor- immorality. And uh, Jesus came into her hometown. She heard him speak. As he spoke, she realized, this is not a man. This is God himself, the Messiah, sent to this earth to save sinners like me. And she put her faith in him as her Messiah. She received his gift of forgiveness. And then you remember, she discovers that Jesus is still in her hometown that evening. And she discovers that he's having dinner at a Pharisee's home by the name of Simon, a very self-righteous man. And she, she's, she just knows somehow she's got to uh, interrupt that dinner party to express uh, her love, her worship of her newfound uh, Savior and Lord. And you know the story, how she just uh, uh, very boldly uh, walks right into the uh, dinner party uninvited. Um, She brings with her uh, the most valuable possession she owned, an alabaster vial of costly uh, perfume. And and you you need to picture the scene. 
Jesus and Simon are reclining as they eat. They're, they're laying on their side, propped up with one elbow, the other arm hand free to eat with their feet tucked uh, uh, behind them. And, uh, and as this woman approaches, as she comes to Jesus, she's just overcome with emotion, just overwhelmed with appreciation that her sins have been forgiven. She's been washed clean. She's overcome by adoration, and she begins to weep, uncontrollably weep. And she notices what? That her tears are falling on the dust-stained feet of the Savior. And so she takes her long hair, and with her tears, remember what she did? She washed the Savior's feet. And then she took that alabaster vial of perfume. She broke it and poured every drop on Jesus. And what I've always believed is probably the most extravagant act of worship recorded in the Scriptures. And then the Bible tells us the entire time she was in Christ's presence, she remained buried at His feet, and she never ceased kissing His feet. So you need to imagine the scene. Jesus reclining, eating. This woman buried at His feet, just kissing His feet repeatedly. This self-righteous Pharisee, the Bible tells us, he's watching all this. He knows the reputation of this woman because this is his hometown. He doesn't say it out loud, but the Bible tells us he's thinking to himself, if this Jesus really were a prophet of God, if he really were a man sent from God, a teacher of God, he would know what kind of woman this is, and he would not let a woman like that, even within shouting distance of him, not mentioned to touch him, and he was literally repulsed by the scene. But Jesus knows what Simon is thinking. And he turns to Simon, woman still buried at his feet, still kissing his feet. And he says, Simon, he says, when I came into your home, he said, did you have the common courtesy to have one of your servants wash my feet? Which was just common etiquette in that day in the Orient. And Jesus said, no, you did not. But Simon, look at this woman. Look at this woman. Buried at my feet, kissing my feet with her tears of love, her tears of appreciation and adoration. She's washed my feet. Simon, when I came into your home, did you even have the common courtesy to anoint me prior to our meal? Again, just a common etiquette that would have been, had been expected uh, for any dinner guest. And Jesus said, no, you did not. But Simon, look at this woman, again, buried at his feet, kissing his feet. He said, she brought her most valuable possession on planet Earth. She broke that vial, poured it every drop on me to demonstrate that she was counting everything lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing me as her Lord and Savior. That now I am her greatest love, I am her greatest passion and pursuit in life. Simon, when I came into your house, did you even have the common courtesy to greet me with the oriental greeting kiss. No, but Simon, look at this woman. Look at her. Look at this woman that you detest. Look at this woman that repulses you, Simon. She's never ceased kissing me the entire time she's been in my presence. And he, he told Simon a story. He said, Simon, there were two men that owed the same moneylender a debt. One a very large debt, one a very small debt. He forgave both men their debts. I say one owed $500,000, the other owed 
He said, Simon, which men would love the most? Simon didn't have to think long. He said, well, teacher, I assume the one forgiven most would love the most. And he says, Simon, you've answered right. And then he uses the woman to drive home the point. And he says, says, Simon, see her? The one forgiven much loves much. In other words, that is what forgiveness should produce in a believer's life. It should produce a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It should produce a worship for the Lord Jesus Christ. It should should bring us to the place where we realize in light of his forgiveness of my sin to give me not only abundant life now but eternal life forever. Therefore, there never could be any gift too extravagant for him. There could be no sacrifice too great for him. He's worthy of all that I am, of all that I possess for the rest of my life to honor him. And that is what's being said in Psalm 130. The purpose of forgiveness is that we would know a reverential fear for God, that we'd brought to worship God, to honor God. Now, the third couplet, verses 5 and 6, acknowledges confidence in God's word and God's faithfulness to keep his promises. Look at those verses again. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed more than the watchman for the morning. Now probably the most significant observation to make from these two verses is that waiting on God is synonymous to hoping in God's word. Look at verse 5 again. He says, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word I do hope. So when we say I am waiting on God, what that means practically is that I am putting my trust, I'm putting my confidence, I'm putting my hope in God's word, in God's promises as I struggle with this trial, as I walk through this crisis, I'm not without hope because I have God's promise. Now, waiting, of course, implies what? The need to persevere, to persevere in my trust in God, to persevere in that trust, to persevere in my faith, even when I'm in the depths of my pain, even when I'm totally perplexed, when I have no understanding why God allowed this to happen, when I can see no way out of the mess. That's what waiting implies. This this perseverance and trusting in God in in the most difficult of times. Well, what gives me the strength to persevere in my waiting and not give up on God? It is my hope in God's Word that provides that strength and inspiration. The night may seem endless for the watchman, but he knows the light of morning is certain and that its time is determined. And right now, you might be in a long, dark night of the soul. All around you may seem darkness. You may be in the depths right now, and you don't understand why. You see no way out. You're struggling with pain or perplexity. But folks, dawn will come because God is faithful. His word is true. And that time is determined, and he's never late. He's never late. Now, the fourth and final couplet, verses 7 and 8, indicates that 
the personal experiences of forgiveness, and this is, this is just uh, stunning, that the personal experiences of forgiveness reveal not only the loving nature of God, but it also provides us a preview of the great corporate forgiveness and deliverance that is to come to God's people, to both Israel and to the church. In other words, because God forgives sin, He will one day literally remove all sin. Uh, look at verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with Him is, isn't this a great phrase? And with Him is what? Abundant redemption. I love that. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. The reason for Israel's future hope, the reason for the church's future hope, is God's loyal love which produces abundant redemption. How will the Lord deliver us from all crises? How will he deliver us from all stress, from all sorrow, from all suffering? By bringing an end to all iniquity. Since every crisis we face is a result of either our sin or someone else's sin or the fact that I'm living in a fallen world where I suffer the effects of that reality, when that sin is removed, all crisis will end. There'll be no more stress. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more suffering. This is God's promise, not just to forgive us of our sins, but to remove us from the very presence of sin. And that is the promise he gives to every child of God. That is the promise he gives to Israel. That is the promise that he gives to the church, that there is coming a future day when he will remove us from the very presence of sin. And when that happens, we'll no longer know the effects of sin and we'll be freed from all stress, from all sorrow, from all suffering. Amen? That is something to get excited about, folks, if you want to get excited. Uh, so Psalm 130 is a magnificent psalm, just to sum it up, trusting in God's forgiveness of sin and especially in times of crisis to reassure us that... Uh, of God's unfailing love, that we can count on Him because of His disposition of love toward us which has resulted from His forgiveness of us. Now, with that, look in your notes at the historical background. Uh, and there's something interesting that I want you to see here. Psalm 130 summarizes the confidence Hezekiah placed in God's forgiveness and redemption, which he wrote about right after God saved him from his terminal disease, which is recorded in Isaiah 38, 9 through 20. Let me read these verses for you. This is, the Bible tells us this is what Hezekiah wrote right after his illness and his recovery, after God healed him. This is how it reads from Isaiah 38. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery, I said, in the prime of my life, I must go through the gates of death and be robbed of the rest of my years. The first part of this is like a, 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 a lament. Uh, he, he's, he's mourning uh, this sentence of death that has been placed on him. He said, I said... Uh, I will not again see the Lord himself in the land of the living, 
No longer will I look on my fellow man or be with those who dwell in this world. Like a shepherd's tent, my house has been pulled down and taken from me. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life, and he has cut me off from the loom. Day and night you made an end of me. I waited patiently till dawn, but like a lion he broke all my bones. Day and night you made an end of me. I cried like a swift or thrush. I moaned like a mourning dove. My eyes grew weak as I looked to the heavens. I am being threatened. And then he cries out, Lord, come to my aid. And now everything changes. But what can I say? He has spoken to me. God gave him the promise through the miracle of the degrees that he would be healed. They would add 15 years to his life. That he would deliver them from the Assyrian invasion. He has spoken to me. And he himself, God himself, has done this. He's referring to his healing. I will walk humbly now all my years because of this anguish of my soul. Lord, by such things people live and my spirit finds life in them too. You restored me to health and you let me live. And I love this next verse. Surely... It was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. It was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love, you kept me from the pit of destruction, and you have put all my sins behind your back. For the grave cannot praise you. Death cannot sing your praise. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, they praise you as I am doing today. Parents, tell their children about your faithfulness. The Lord will save me and we will sing my songs. And that's referring, I believe, to the Psalms of the Degrees, which he compiled. We will sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the temple of the Lord. Now, pick back up with that historical background because I want you to see how what he wrote there that we see in Isaiah, how it corresponds to Psalm 130. The cry for help in Psalm 130, verses 1 and 2 that we looked at, corresponds to Hezekiah's cry for help in Isaiah 38, verse 14. My eyes grew weak as I looked to the heavens. I am troubled. O Lord, come to my aid. The confidence in God's forgiveness expressed in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, corresponds to Hezekiah's statement in Isaiah 38, 17, in your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. The acknowledgement in Psalm 134 that the experience of God's forgiveness produces a walk of reverential fear uh, with God corresponds to Isaiah 38, 15. He says, he has spoken to me, and he himself has done this. What's the result? I will walk humbly all my years because of the anguish of my soul. The analogy in Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6, of waiting in hope for God's word as the watchmen wait for the light of dawn after a long night of darkness, corresponds to Isaiah 38, verse 13, I will waited patiently until dawn. In Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8, the white writer moves from his personal redemption to the redemption of the nation, as does Hezekiah in Isaiah 38, verses 19 and 20. The living, the living, they praise you as I'm doing today. Fathers, 
Tell their children about your faithfulness. The Lord will save me, and we, notice the we, that's referring to the nation. We will sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the temple of the Lord. So I think we clearly see how this Psalm 130 that we believe was written by Hezekiah corresponds uh, to the two great crises that came into his life and how God delivered his people, not on the basis of their performance, that they earned it, but on the basis of his mercy and his mercy alone. Now, look at lessons to be learned for today. Now, as we close with this, as we walk through this, you need to apply this. Uh, I know there are those of you seated here this morning that you are in a long, dark night of the soul. I know some of the situations some of you are in, that right now you would say, like Hezekiah, I'm floundering in the depths like a drowning man. And I trust, like Hezekiah, although you may be struggling, you're still putting your hope in God. You're trusting in God for deliverance. So you need to take these lessons, these truths, and you need to apply them to your life and to your situation uh, today. So let's just walk uh, through this. We'll have to do it fairly quickly. But look at the first lesson. Trusting in God's forgiveness of sin resolves my struggle expressed in the statement, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that in counseling. I know God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. And we we just stay sort of depressed in shame and regret. And to an extent, I can understand that struggle. But at the same time, let me be very honest, very direct with you about what I think the heart of the problem is on this point. If I admit that God forgives me, but then I do not forgive myself, in reality, am I not insulting God's judgment and exalting my judgment above God as if I have some sort of higher degree of justice than God? In other words, if God says, Andy, I sent my son to die on the cross for your sins. As he died there, he who knew no sin became sin, became everything you are, what you've done, in order that I might forgive you and that you might be made the righteousness of God in him. Andy, if I let my son suffer your punishment and I judged him for your sin, isn't that an affront to God not to accept that? Romans 8, 31 and 34, I think drives this home. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So if 
Christ has forgiven me, why would I question that forgiveness? It's mine to receive, to glory in. And, and folks, let's, let's just talk about this too. A lot of times we do that, we think this is walking in humility. That's not walking in humility. The most God-centered thing you can do is give God glory for forgiveness of your sin. It's not to wallow in guilt. Not to wallow in shame when Christ took that judgment for you. No, it's to give God glory. It's to put Him center stage. That He forgave you, a sinner. And He gave you that forgiveness as a gift. It was totally undeserved, totally unmerited. Just a free gift He gave you. That's how to honor God. Look at the second truth. Trusting in God's forgiveness of sin provides the confident hope God will enable me to conquer the trials and adversities of life. In other words, if I, if I know God has forgiven me, that means nothing can alter His disposition of love towards me. I'm His child, and He loves me as much as He loved the Lord, loves the Lord Jesus Christ. He is just as committed to protect me and to provide for me as He's committed to protect and provide for His Son. And so Romans 8, 35 and through 37, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who what? Loved us. And that love is built on the foundation of his forgiveness. Because he's forgiven me, he loves me. And if he loves me, he's committed to deliver me. He's committed to come to my aid when I cry out to help. He's committed to use those trials for my benefit. I, again, I love what Hezekiah wrote. He said, all this was for my benefit. He let me go through this anguish for my benefit, for my spiritual benefit. To show me just how great my God is. To show me the wonderful joy that there is in putting my trust in Him. And being able to honor Him in that way. And then look at the third truth. Trusting in God's forgiveness of sin frees me from interpreting hardship as God's punishment for sin. Trusting in God's forgiveness of sin frees me from interpreting hardship as God's punishment for sin. Let's be honest. When trouble hits our lives, when we begin to experience pain and perplexity and suffering, whatever it might be, our first question, and we're all this way, this is the frailty of our humanity, what did I do wrong? Why are you punishing me? And we need to see trusting in God's forgiveness of sin frees me forever frees me from interpreting hardship as God's punishment. If I am God's child, Jesus took the punishment for my sin. I will never be punished for that sin. Nothing can ever alter the disposition of God's love towards me. That doesn't mean he won't discipline me. Yes, I need to come clean before God as I walk in my life. But even his discipline is not punishment He's thinking of my future. He's thinking of what's best for me. He's thinking of my benefit. He's thinking of my good. 
Romans 8, 35, 36, and 37, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Any of those things? No. Oh, I'm sorry. It's for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Look at the fourth truth. Trusting in God's forgiveness of sin gives me the assurance God has saved me from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. That's called justification. That he's declared me not guilty in the courtroom of heaven. And he's given me a pardon. So he saved me from the penalty of sin. He is saving me, present tense, from the power of sin. That's called sanctification. He's in the process now of conforming me to the image of Jesus Christ, teaching me to turn away from sin, to be delivered, to be free from sin, to walk in righteousness. That's called sanctification. And one day will save me from the very presence of sin, as we talked about a moment ago, and that's called glorification. So trusting in God's forgiveness of sin, it gives me the assurance, absolute assurance, on the basis of God's promise, not my performance, that he has saved me from the penalty of sin, is saving me from the power of sin, and one day will save me from the very presence of sin. Again, I love Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8, and with him is what? Abundant redemption. And folks, that's abundant redemption. Justification, sanctification, and glorification, and he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Look at the fifth point. Trusting in God's forgiveness of sin always results in a clear conscience to serve God. Hebrews 9.14 reads, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, what I've done in those next bullet points is just giving you some truths and principles how to maintain a clear conscience before God. Because again, this is a relationship. And and yes, he's forgiven and he wants to walk in fellowship with me, but I need to reciprocate to that, which basically means I I need to always walk in honesty before God, not hiding anything from God. The Scripture says we're to walk in the light even as what? Christ is in the light. And that's referring walking in total truth, honesty, and transparency. And it says, if I do, the blood of Christ cleanses us from what? All sin. So, the first thing is, reflect with sorrow over your sin. As a believer, when you stumble... And by the way, a believer never fully enjoys sin. He's uncomfortable in it. When he's, You know, the difference between... Uh, a believer and unbeliever is the difference between sheep, a sheep and a pig. You know, a, a sheep falls in the mud, falls in the mire. Uh, he doesn't like it. He's going to struggle to get out. He'll cry out to the shepherd to rescue him. But that old pig, he'll just wallow in the mud. He'll just love every second of it. 
And see, a true believer, yes, we fall. Yes, we stumble. We're still struggling with our, the frailty of our humanity. We're still struggling from those old sin patterns of our past life prior to even coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that is a constant struggle. And we'll know that struggle until we see Jesus face to face. But so when I do stumble, I do need to reflect with sorrow over my sin. 2 Corinthians 7.10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance. Notice, without regret. Don't miss that. Without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world is just being sorry for the consequences, that you got caught, and the consequences. We're talking about a, a, a a, 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 sor- a sorrow that reflects on the sin where I want to get to the root of the sin. Where it's not just what I did, but why I did it. It gets to the heart issue. You know, what was really behind that, Andy, was your stinking pride. Or oh, what was really behind that irritability you expressed toward your wife or your children or whoever it might be. That's just your stinking selfishness. You just want your way. You don't have a servant's heart. You want everyone to serve you. That's what I mean. You, you, you got to reflect to where you put the axe to the root of the issue. And you open up your heart to allow God to deal with that and take you further down that process of sanctification. Look at the second thing. And then rest in the forgiveness of the risen Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. The reason I put the emphasis on the risen Lord is simply this. Now listen very, very carefully. I don't want to... Well, let me just say it. My forgiveness... Yes, it's based on a past event in history, the death of Christ. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that your forgiveness lies in a person that's alive. Not just some historical event in the past, but Jesus who rose from the dead and is alive. And so often I think we forget that. We just look back to this event. We, we, we don't see Jesus present as the one who loves me because he has forgiven me and ready and available to rescue me as I call on him. And then look at the uh, next one. Restore what is restorable. That passage, Luke 19, that's Zacchaeus. So if you have wronged somebody, cheated somebody, uh, if it's possible, restore uh, what is restorable, you need to do that. That's the godly thing to do. Uh, the next thing, remember God forgets. Remember God forgets. Hebrews 10, verses 17, 18, and 19. And their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember what? No more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. I don't, again, have confidence on the basis of who I am, what I've done. My confidence is in the blood of Jesus and His forgiveness. And it's on the basis of that blood that I can boldly, confidently come to be honest, to become clean before God, to cry out on Him to meet me in my pain. And then the next bullet point, receive hardship. We talked about this a moment ago. is God's discipline, not damnation. 
receive hardship in life is God's discipline, not damnation. That Hebrews 12 passage, I'll let you read that. That's that marvelous passage about how God disciplines his children, but it's always for our good, not to punish us, but for our good. And then that last bullet point, reveal the scars from your sin as a testimony of God's forgiveness and healing. Yes, sin has consequences, even when you're forgiven, and it leaves scars. Don't try to hide the scars. Use the scars to give a testimony to God's forgiveness and grace. David recognized this. After he committed adultery and murder, he said this to God, Restore me, God. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. You will use even my scars as a testimony of your grace to keep people from making the mistake that I made and for people that have made that mistake to lead them to your grace and forgiveness even as I've come to your grace and forgiveness. Father, again, thank you uh, for this marvelous, marvelous Psalm 130 that there is forgiveness with you. There is abundant redemption. And Lord, we acknowledge as believers, um, um, although we have received that, often we neglect the great salvation that we have, that um, we develop a distorted view of you. And so, Lord, I pray you would correct that, that we would see your forgiveness, we would see what that forgiveness means, that you will never alter your disposition of love toward us, that it will give us the uh, courage to always walk before you honestly, never to cover up, never to hide, but to always come clean before you because Jesus already took our punishment, already took our judgment. And then, Lord, that we would uh, see because of that foundation of forgiveness, because you do love us, you will never allow us to drown in the depths of our adversity and troubles. That as we call out to you in your perfect timing, we'll see the light of dawn and we'll know uh, the fulfillment of the promise of your word that you do truly cause all things to work for our good and your greater uh, glory. For it's in Christ's name we do pray, amen.